0: Welcome to Disruption
1: Land. Welcome to Disruption Land. Welcome to Disruption Land, the unconventional take on all things
0: innovation, tech,
1: and transformation. Join us as we explore
0: the ideas and impact that might just change change the the world. Welcome to today's episode of Disruption Land on the topic of synthetic data. I'm Hannah Sapiens, Disruption Officer at Epicenter, and I'm here to be your host today. Data is the new gold. That's a sentence we often hear. And in the 2020s, I think there is no doubt that data collection and analysis will become the basis for all future service offerings and business models. There is just no other way to run. business. As an economy, as a civilization, we are becoming data-driven. On a side note, I think it's about time. I mean, can you imagine people making decisions based not on data? I mean, primitive heuristics or even the horror gut feelings? Instinct? Honestly, when someone says the word gut feeling, I remove the safety from my revolver. I guess, unless they're in the business of microbiomes. (laughs) Then again, Smart Assets will say that it's not about the data, it's about the insight. Well, of course, but good luck in finding that insight without the data. Data is in many ways a tradable asset today. A most valuable resource for any organization that needs to navigate rapidly developing environments. But it is also an asset with a limited best before date. Because in these fast-moving settings... Nobody cares about yesterday's data. More importantly, though, than the short expiry date, at least in our part of the world, we also care about people's privacy and data rights. This means, in practice, that there are many categories of data that are simply not available for monetization. GDPR could be the most well-known legal acronym in our current times. GDPR and other similar data protection regimes around the world not only makes it impossible for a lot of organizations that possess valuable and sought-after data to share it and to trade it. In addition, simply being in possession of protected data is a potential liability. The fines for sloppy data handling are hefty, not to mention the obvious loss of trust and credibility for any data-managing entity not living up to the relevant compliance standards. However, there are some interesting novel solutions which in a smart way simply circumvents the data protection barriers without compromising the integrity of anybody. It unlocks the value of the previously unusable, unmonetizable data. One such solution is synthetic data. In short, synthetic data is computer-generated data that doesn't have any relationship to real persons, but which in aggregate will have similar statistical properties and can be used for the same purposes as real datasets. I think this is the beginning of a new paradigm in the data-driven economy. If it pans out, it will indeed be a revolution. That is what we will work to understand in today's episode. In this podcast, we bring in the real experts. People who not only work with the tech in question, but are also helping shaping its future. And more importantly, are able to convey what the ongoing developments mean for business and for society as a whole. Today's guest, Alexander Hanf, is a person with an impressive background. He's a privacy advocate of worldwide renown. He's the co-founder and CEO of Think Privacy, a privacy and data protection consultancy. He has also advised the FTC, the European Commission, the UK Home Office, and various other public and private sector organizations on issues ranging from online, behavioral advertising, e-privacy, surveillance, and identity. Alex, we're very happy to have you with us today.
1: My pleasure, of course, Annie. Alex,
0: let's get down to business. Your field is data, e-privacy and identity. Let's talk about data. What important transformative trends do you see right now in the world of big data?
1: Well, I mean, at the moment given the the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, which has taken the world by surge for the first half of this year, there's been a great deal of focus on uh, issues surrounding data protection and privacy, particularly as we're all working from or most of us are working from home now doing remote work and there's been a a huge increase in remote work and it's looking like that will remain for some time and in fact some large companies have even stated they will allow their staff to continue to work from home indefinitely if Mm -hmm. they so wish to do so as a result of that people have become more aware of privacy and data protection challenges so for example i mean uh, i I won't say what i'm wearing sat here doing this podcast um, but i'm certainly not in office certainly not in office attire uh, fortunately this is an audio recording, so it's not such a problem. It's very warm outside, so I'm trying to... You're,
0: you're giving our listeners some very powerful images here, Alex, or, already
1: in the... <laughs> If this is a video conference, for example, then that would be uh, potentially a much more serious thing to, to consider. Not just how you present yourself within that environment, but also the environment that you're in as well. So whether or not you have family members around or family photographs or pictures on the walls or other things which can be seen through your camera mm-hmm. uh, in the case of video conferencing that you may not want others to see. Things which would be considered infringing on the privacy of your, of your home life or your, or your private space. And this is an issue, a topic which has been raised much recently with the emergence of video conferencing Mm. as the norm. Yeah, the explosion
0: really of of all these platforms of Teams and Zoom and, and whatnot. But Zoom were challenged relatively early in this process, right, for their lousy privacy and security aspects. What's your take on that conversation?
1: Yeah, I mean, they were challenged and they were challenged directly by me going back some time. In fact, I first challenged Zoom about two years ago, privacy and data protection issues for their service.
0: Interesting. Tell us a bit more. What were the issues you saw already at that time?
1: Um, Well, there was no end-to-end encryption. They were able to access the data themselves. They were saving the data in their cloud services. They were using that or analyzing that data for various different purposes, all of which are not entirely clear, but there's certainly reason to believe that some of that analysis was being done for marketing and advertising purposes. And there really was no privacy with Zoom, Zoom video conferences. On top of that, On an earlier edition of Zoom, they were installing web servers on desktop machines in order to easily launch the Zoom client from a a link. The problem with that was it introduced very severe or very serious security issues...
0: Right, it could be launched by any external party or someone. you, you could simply ring someone up, right? And
1: Yeah, and it, and it exposes the machine to the public internet. If you're on a web server, then if there's any security vulnerabilities within that code, that can provide direct access to your machine uh, or to your internal network behind that machine. So there's significant concerns there, and in fact, Apple removed Zoom from their the app store at some point, I think it was last year or the year before, because of this issue, because of this web server issue. It was seen as... as not compatible with their terms and conditions for App Store and certainly was a big security concern. They're not the only ones to have done it. There are several of these video conferencing suites who did the same thing. Who also had web servers. I think BlueJeans was one of them. So this wasn't completely isolated to Zoom, but Zoom was one of the ones that I was coming across more and more frequently. There was, there was Zoom, there was obviously Cisco WebEx, continuing to be popular uh, over the past couple of years as well, and increasingly BlueJeans. But this, these were issues that we were facing across the board. As
0: a privacy advisor, Alex, uh, do you think these are, um, have they now acquired an acceptable level, uh, speaking in of Teams and Zoom and, and the, the most common platforms, or are you still uh, skeptical to how far they have come?
1: No, I mean, Zoom absolutely have not met any sort of acceptable standard. In fact, they made a controversial decision. There was a, an earnings call, I think it was last week, and the CEO of Zoom said to the people on the call that they would not implement end-to-end encryption for the free Zoom service because they wanted to be able to cooperate with police and law enforcement and provide access to those calls.
0: How, how valid is that argument in your, in your book?
1: <laughs> oh, it's completely invalid. I mean, it's, it's making the assumption that only people who use free services commit crime. End-to-end encryption is going to be made available for people who pay for the Zoom service? So they're called to protected from the police and, and other surveillance actors. But for people who are free, they're assumed to to commit to the crime or likely to commit a crime as as a, de- as a default. So they don't get the encryption. From my position as a, a human rights advocate and a privacy advocate, this is obviously a, a, a very troubling situation where we end up with a, a privacy class system, so to speak, where those who can afford privacy get it mm. and those who can't don't. And it, it, it was a calling decision by the CEO of Zoom mm. to make that statement. And it's been received very badly mm. by human rights and NGOs, organizations. And bear in mind, it's not just individuals, you know, yourself and I or other family members who may use a free version of Zoom to communicate with each other during these times. But there's a lot of nonprofits out there who rely on access to free services in order to be able to conduct their business.
0: So, I mean, these companies, they have they have a social responsibility in this dimension to make sure that uh, even the, the free uh, versions of the platform adhere to, to basic uh, protection standards.
1: Exactly. And under European law, under the GDPR, there's a requirement for privacy and data protection and security by design and by default. So they can't argue that they're able to provide this by default for people who pay but can't provide it by default for people who don't pay. This mm. technology is already developed. There's no additional cost in deploying that technology across the two different platforms. There's a minimal overhead with regards to the processing of the encryption but most of that is done on the client side as opposed to the server side so it's, it's really not a valid argument. And actually the, the decision they've made in that call last week would be in my mind in breach of, of European law both the, the GDPR and the e-privacy
0: directive Interesting. We'll see how that will soon being a US-based operation. Now, Alex, thinking that our listeners here are often entrepreneurs and uh, company builders, how should they relate to these services and what concerns should, should they have in mind when they use the video platforms that have become so prevalent?
1: I mean, confidentiality is incredibly important and is a, a facet of EU law that we have confidential communication. It's been a case since 2002 when the ePrivacy directive was implemented. And of course, in 1995, we had the original data protection journey which had some assets relating to the protection of personal data as well, which would be relevant in this case. So confidentiality, not just because it's important that people can feel free that they're communicating in a free and confidential environment in order to be able to establish freedom of speech because we all know that if we're being surveilled that we change the way that we behave. So we may not be speaking as candidly or as freely or as honestly as we would do if we know we're not being surveilled. So it stifles freedom of speech, not having this private environment for communication. But also from a business perspective, there's there's the issue of intellectual property and business secrets. If you're using these platforms day-to-day to conduct business with remote work, you want to be able to ensure that these communications are confidential because if they're not, and we know from case of Zoom that certainly in previous version uh, a lot of this data was being funneled through Chinese data centers, which is a separate issue in and of itself. But as a company, you certainly want to ensure that those communications are private and that they are protected because you may be discussing sensitive things in relation to your business, your revenues, your business processes, your business secrets, intellectual property, etc. Et so these things have to be considered and encryption shouldn't be considered something which is nice to have it's something that should be enabled by default in this day and age in all platforms across all services there's no valid reason not to encrypt data in the modern age
0: so this is obviously not limited just to video conferencing that's just being one attribute of this whole uh, enterprise solutions moving onto cloud based services right yes
1: and and this creates problems again which you know Cloud is very convenient. There's no question cloud is very convenient. But with that convenience comes a loss of control. And when you're placing all your data into the controlled environment or into an environment that you don't control, then you have no way of knowing for sure that that data is safe and um, we know that exploits are raised on a regular basis. I mean, there have been firmware flaws within Intel chips and AMD chips at the CPU level, which have allowed access to things like Amazon's cloud services, where different customers are sharing the same physical resources on big servers, so the same CPUs, the same memory, etc., and they've been able to be bypassed as a result of flaws in the hardware and the firmware that runs those hardware. You know, So with cloud, yes, there, there comes a, a decrease in cost in some sense. Situation Certainly not in all situations, i found in my work in this space that I can often do things cheaper self-hosted than I can do in the cloud, although that does require some level of expertise that you need to invest in in order to be able to manage and, and facilitate that. But generally speaking, I find it to be cheaper to self-host than to, to use cloud services. How,
0: yeah, how would you advise entrepreneurs, for example? I, I mean, if you have a small company with limited resources, it's very simple to sign up for the Google Suite or, or just uh, a Microsoft package. And, you know, you don't have to maintain the maintenance. You, f- you focus on, on developing the most value-creating dimensions of your business. But you're saying self-hosting should really be a strategic option early on for, for companies uh, to consider.
1: Yeah, I, I genuinely believe so. I mean, you you know yourself from your experience in, uh, with me uh, over the past. We started the company back in 2018. We bought secondhand servers, three secondhand servers, which came to a total of less than €2,000. Euros. We put them in a data center in Stockholm, and we pay a monthly charge for using Data Empowered in that data center of around, I think it's around €300. Euros. And within that environment, we host our own private cloud. And we host all of our services within that private cloud, our email, our website, our Git repository, our project management suite, every single piece of software um, or every software platform or service that we run, we run as open source in our own private cloud at a cost of literally around 300 euros per month.
0: Yeah, so that, that, that is definitely an option, yeah, for uh, even for small companies to who have the required competence to consider.
1: Very useful advice. The other thing that's important to note as well is, you know, it may be very easy to deploy things in the cloud. It may be very easy to use Google G Suite or Microsoft Office 365, et cetera. But with that comes very significant legal risks. So, for example, Office 365 had a, uh, an investigation done by the Dutch government about two years ago now, or just over a year ago now, and was found to have over 80,000 different violations of GDPR, uh, which, which creates a significant problem. <clears throat> <Yeah. laughs> You know, you may think as a company, well, it's only going to cost us, you know, 120 euros a month to have our eight staff on Office 365. But what if there's a breach? What's it going to cost you then? You know, so the legal risk with that legal risk. Comes the potential of significantly higher costs, legal costs, penalties, administrative fines, etc. Not to mention reputational damage, which could destroy your company as a startup. These things have to be taken into consideration as well. So it's not just the the obvious costs up front of actually deploying these technologies. It's the cost of compliance with the law or failure to comply with the law over the long term. Should something go wrong, and these things need to be taken into consideration as well.
0: Yes, that is part of the risk assessment. Absolutely. Now, uh, you know, moving beyond perhaps the basic sort of in-house hosting of one's own company systems. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, concept of data harvesting and and the broader sort of data-driven economy, the the real-time dashboard type operation of digital companies that we're now seeing is, is accelerating in many places. What's, what's your take on the uh, datafication of many businesses?
1: My first take working in this space as a consultant, but also somebody who helps to develop and shape these laws across the EU and elsewhere in the world, is there's a, a significant amount of ignorance across, I would say, most companies both startups and established companies when it comes to their compliance obligations. And whether or not that ignorance is accidental or deliberate is not for me to say. In certain, certainly in some cases, it's pretty obvious that it's deliberate. In other cases, it's, it's pretty obvious that they simply don't understand what those obligations are. But it's a big issue, you know, and a lot of the data which is being collected by companies is being collected unlawfully. So, for example, websites, an area that I have particular expertise in, e-privacy, the use of cookies and other tracking technologies on websites is widespread and is, under European law, completely illegal without a valid consent. Mm. Um, And a valid consent doesn't mean that you just have a banner on your website that says, we use cookies, if you use this website, you must agree. That is not considered as a valid consent under European law. In fact, that's an invalid consent and would be a breach of GDPR and the privacy directors and the current case law and make you susceptible to quite significant fines should the regulator take action against you. But this is widespread, and, and this is a pet peeve of mine because I was the person who was responsible for developing the law in the first place back in 2008, which led to how companies can collect data online and track individuals on their devices and through their websites, et cetera, which many people call the cookie law, but which actually covers a lot more than cookies. It covers all tracking technologies and all access to information on people's devices. It's not just websites that are doing this. A lot of companies develop apps, and within those apps, they're using software development kits from from Google and and Microsoft and various advertising companies and data-broken companies, et cetera which are all in violation of EU law. Mm. Smart devices, which are developed by companies like Withings, for example, who I have an extending complaint against with the French regulator. Again, collecting and harvesting data for their own purposes in breach of law and bundling the use of those devices with the requirement that that data be collected. There was an interesting case with, I think it was Sonos, the speaker company, right. who changed their terms and conditions. This is going back about two years now. They changed their terms and conditions for one of their smart speakers, which required you to agree to the terms and conditions which included sharing data back with Sonos about how you use the device, including in some cases, as far as I recall, recordings of voices in order to be able to continue to use the device. If mm. you didn't agree to these terms and conditions, they bricked the device. Exactly. And Sonos speakers at the time, I think they were around €350 Euros a pop. So we're not talking an inexpensive device here. These, From the perspective of a, of a speaker, these are quite expensive devices, which were suddenly rendered useless because Sonos uh, decided that if you weren't going to agree to their terms and conditions, you can no longer use the hardware that you paid for. Mm. And this is not isolated. This oh. has happened in a number of different situations as well. IoT is a particular concern. A lot of companies are using IoT nowadays, which have a number of problems from a security and privacy perspective. First and foremost, many of the IoT devices which are deployed currently have no way of being remotely updated. So any security vulnerabilities which appear within a specific chipset or within a specific piece of software or hardware remain. Mm-hmm. And there are literally billions of devices out there which are known to be insecure because there's no way to update. But there was also
0: the the challenge that you described with the uh, devices being able to be remotely updated and also then, for example, service limited. Now that we're seeing the moving away from the downloading of of things and into streaming instead and continuous subscription of services. We always have that worry that, uh, you know, there is a constant data stream happening between my uh, private devices in my home and also the ability for a supplier to shut them down or or take actions with them outside of my control.
1: Yeah. And this this is a big problem as well. It used to be when you bought a device, you owned the device. You could do what you wanted to that device. You could take it apart. You could put it back together. You could solder things to it. You could, you know, literally do what you want to Make it look like a puppet if you wanted. Because mm-hmm. it was your device, you paid for it. Nowadays, we don't buy devices. We think we're buying devices, but we don't. Mm. We receive a physical or tangible object, but what makes it work is software. And that software is only provided on a license or a subscription base, and the hardware is superfluous to that, because without the software, the hardware is completely useless. This is another reason why there's this growing community around building your own devices. So I recently began building my own Apple HomeKit devices at the chip level, so buying specific chips and circuit boards and building my own smart devices, because that way... I can control what data is being produced by that device and where that data goes. I can keep it within my own network on my own storage. Instead of it going to some cloud provider, who are then going to use that data for all sorts of other purposes at a risk to my privacy, my fundamental right.
0: Right. However, we we are both aware. I'm also a happy tinkerer of technology, but we know that that is still the uh, an exclusive domain. And most people, uh, I mean, we do it out of hobby and interest and fascination of technology. But uh, most people are, are happy just to buy a device, or nowadays increasingly just signing up for the subscription of of different services like streaming music or sc- streaming streaming television uh, documentaries or whatnot. But Alex, yeah. you talked a fair bit now about the problems and the challenges. And I mean, this is this, this, the misery of, of the sort of big data driven economy. But tell me now a little bit, because I know you're working on some exciting initiatives about what ways you see to to unlock data in sort of privacy-friendly ways.
1: Yeah, I mean, privacy by design, as I mentioned earlier, is a, a facet of European law, and it's embedded in GDPR with regard to the fact that all services, all projects, all development, all products should be developed in a way which is guaranteed to protect the fundamental rights of the end users, of the data subjects, as we call them in, in European law. And privacy by design, when you design a product or a service based on privacy by design, it actually becomes really quite simple to be able to extract value from that data because you've already eliminated all the risks to fundamental rights prior to that project going Yeah. So one of the things that we're doing currently, for example, is we've started new company recently called Syndata and we create synthetic data in order to do big data analytics.
0: Can you explain what 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 is synthetic data to the listeners that may not be familiar with the term?
1: So synthetic data is is data which looks like real data. So if you were to take a telephone directory, for example, and take fifteen pages out of that telephone directory, we could then use that data to create synthetic data which statistically matches that original data, but can be of a magnitude larger. So we could take over 15 pages and create a trillion pages of similar data, which has the same statistical attributes and can be read just as a telephone directory page would be read, but that data doesn't relate to any single individual at all. It's completely made up, yeah? And this is done literally within a very short period of time using machine learning, artificial intelligence, deep learning, to analyze the patterns within the data and create data at the other side, which looks exactly the same, but doesn't relate to any individuals. So it allows you to do things like, statistical analysis, predictive analysis, data modeling, data testing, etc., of large projects, the same as you would do with other big data, but without the privacy risks which entail that. So
0: why, why should companies then pay attention to synthetic data?
1: Synthetic data is, a, is actually growing, it's trending rapidly at the moment in machine learning and data environment, because it removes that risk from compliance perspective of being in breach of laws like GDPR in the EU or CCPA in the US and various other countries around the world we're introducing data protection laws very very closely modelled on the European GDPR. So by removing that risk, you're able to extract more information because you're able to use more data than you were previously because it doesn't relate to any individual. So it's exempt from the GDPR. But you get the same result without the risk. So the cost goes down, the long-term cost goes down. In many cases, the short-term cost goes down as well because you don't have to spend huge amounts of time determining what data you can use and what data you can't use. You can use it all because it doesn't relate to it. Could
0: you give perhaps an industry-related application? How would this work in a case of, for example, finance or telco? or?
1: Okay, so say for example, if, if let's say you're a, a credit story company and you wanted to have some idea about how different behaviors might illustrate pattern for the purpose of scoring credit. Now, if you wanted to do that traditionally, you'd need to collect a lot of information about individuals, about their spending habits and their repayment of credit to be able to detect those behaviors and be able to then uh, set up your scoring algorithm accordingly. That comes with a lot of risk because you need to have the valid legal basis to be able to do that. In many cases, that's very difficult to do because when people sign up to buy something, they don't necessarily sign up to have that data used for that purpose. I mean, GDPR GDPR, we have purpose limitation and purpose specification. Which is required in order to be able to process that data. So, if you have synthetic data which has the same attributes as real data, yeah, so you can still establish the same patterns of behavior, but without it actually relating to any real individuals, then you can develop those algorithms accordingly using the synthetic data.
0: It seems it would allow for much quicker iterations and creation of new data sets if you don't have to go to the legal department to ask for the permission to uh, to use data all the time.
1: Yeah, and there's also situations, you know, that the procedure in which you would normally go through, in this particular situation you would normally need to do what we call a data protection impact assessment, Provided you have a legal basis to use the data in the first place, which is the first over you have to overcome, um, data protection impact assessments take a lot of time, they cost a lot of money, particularly on a project of this size that we just uh, used as the example. Uh, you wouldn't need to do any of that because you wouldn't need to comply with GDPR because you're not using data which is related to any individual. Also, the cost of producing that data is significantly lower as well. In many cases, if you want to do big data analytics, you need to buy that data from mm. somewhere. So you go to a data broker, you pay them a obscene amount of money, to give you the data, then you go to a deep learning company or an AI company and you say, here's this data, please can you give us some algorithms or give us some predictive models based on this data, and they charge you a huge amount of money. So if you use synthetic data, that loop becomes much smaller and those costs decrease significantly. So
0: how do you think synthetic data will impact things in, in, in the larger picture? So it will make companies more agile and allow them to experiment and test hypotheses, etc.? much quicker, and what will that entail ultimately?
1: When you're thinking about synthetic data, you're thinking about freedom. Freedom to be able to innovate, freedom to be able to do things which are currently restricted from doing under GDPR. And this is the reason why I got into this in the first place. I'm a privacy advocate. I've been working in privacy for over, over a decade. I've been working in tech my entire life on some of the biggest projects in the world, for some of the biggest governments in the world. But for me, privacy and fundamental rights are paramount. And we started looking at synthetic data because we were trying to find a way to allow big data to still exist in the world and still innovate and all the benefits we gain from that, but in a way which isn't impacting the fundamental rights and freedoms of individuals. And at the same time, has a cost benefit for the companies who wish to deploy these technologies. So I think from my perspective, it's a great thing from a privacy position, also from a regulatory perspective and compliance perspective. It's a great thing for an organization. For the community and society as a whole, being able to use these technologies, we all know how useful big data can be for things like tracking coronavirus or the, the Zika virus or, or global warming, et cetera. There's no reason why we shouldn't be using these technologies. We just need to use them in a responsible way which doesn't have an impact on the rights and freedoms of individuals. And if we do that through synthetic data, then it's a win-win for everybody. And if you look at the hype or the buzz around synthetic data at the moment, it seems pretty obvious that this is a growing realization and it's a market which is going to dominate over the next five years.
0: I I find it also interesting from the point of view that, uh, I mean, being part of the European wide tech community, we have seen that European companies sometimes struggle because of the limitations on the data that can apply in relation to, for example, US or, uh, for that sake, China-based companies which have different data uh, legislations uh, and uh, regulations. And perhaps if we can exploit the concept of synthetic data, it will allow European-based companies to catch up Uh, with that data disadvantage that uh, we have been suffering from over
1: the last few years. I think not just the data disadvantage, and I wouldn't really say it's a data disadvantage, a lot of these other companies have been breaking the law and got away with it, so it's more a case of law breaking than a... a, Yeah,
0: I'm specifically saying this in the sense of uh, small companies working to innovate with, with limited resources. Now, as a Privacy concerned citizen, I am superbly grateful for for the data protection systems that we do have. But from the sort of tech innovation and not least the listeners to this particular podcast who are working with digital innovation in various dimensions, this has been a hurdle for for a lot of companies.
1: Yeah, I mean it has been. That's mainly due to bad advice and not complying with previous laws, which would make these transitions much easier. But I think the perspective of, from the perspective of synthetic data, I think it's more, I think of it more as a great equalizer because currently the vast amount of data in the world is controlled by a very few companies. Okay. A a few very, very big companies like Google, Facebook, Microsoft, IBM. Yeah. So huge amounts of data in the control of just a few and they make vast profit from providing access to this data in one way or another. Through the use of synthetic data, it enables smaller companies to have the same ability to have access to data which they can use for big data analytics without having to go to these giant global tech companies. So it's a great equalizer. It's a great equalizer that allows much smaller companies to be able to achieve the same thing and obtain the same benefit from big data without having to go and get that data secondhand from a big data broker like Google, which I think is is a much more important point than the compliance issue that you were talking about.
0: No, I I, pr- I profoundly agree. And it's it's interesting that you bring this up because it's it's a recurring theme in these conversations that we have in, in our uh, podcast and often here at Epicenter, which is the, the democratization of digital technologies over time, right? So it begins with the... the the ones that have a lot of resources and there is a concentration of power. But ultimately, we often see that once the technology evolves, it also is spread to a lot more people. And here we have a pregnant example of that happening right so the biggest organizations in the world the biggest tech companies have been able to gather so much data it's given them great advantages but here we have a way to allow small organizations to to generate data in completely different ways which is less costly thereby leveling the playing field for better competition and greater innovation for all the parties involved
1: exactly a startup from Estonia, for example, may be able to, with a very limited budget, provide a predictive algorithm which they've developed through the use of synthetic data, which competes with something Google or Microsoft or Facebook are selling in a way which will give them a market position at an early stage and give them the independence they need to grow their business. Brilliant.
0: Well, Alex, I think uh, our conversation, unfortunately, is uh, closing to an end, and it's been fascinating to... Uh, listen and thank you for sharing these insights into this rapidly evolving field. I am quite sure that we will have to revisit you and and your work in future podcasts. So I'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to join us today.
1: Very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. All right.
0: Take care. Until next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us here in Disruption Land. To visit us again, just subscribe to Disruption Land podcast. This podcast is produced by Epicenter, the house of digital innovation. Discover all about our vibrant tech and business community and inspiring workspaces at weareepicenter.com.